0: Everyone,
1: we are back with another episode of Quote Unquote with KK. Uh, Over the last uh, episodes, we have been picking up issues and areas around the current COVID crisis. We all know that uh, our vaccine is going to be ready in the early of uh, fall of uh, uh, next year one of the biggest crises that digital health will ever face would be how do we reach everyone everywhere and today i have one of my friend and industry associate dr john glass here who i have been working with uh, since early 2000 when he was the cio at uh, at harvard Univers- medical university and harvard partners he has uh, spent uh, his life in health informatics digital health and he brings in experience not only as an executive but also have spent time as chairman of uh, ncqa American Telemedicine Association, and many other uh, industry bodies. John also interestingly spent time with uh, President Bill Clinton on his Committee for Precision Health. So with his wealth of knowledge, I welcome John uh, on our talk show today.
0: Terrific. KK, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So John, uh, you see, uh,
1: the the real crisis or the challenge for dig, the future of digital health would be how does it reach everyone everywhere, and uh, people are really confused uh, between India and digital banking. Digital health. Can you brief uh, briefly tell you know how is digital health? different from uh, digital retail or, or digital finance or digital banking? And, uh, you know, what are the similarities for the audience benefit?
0: Yeah, it's a good question, KK, and I uh, teach a course at the Harvard Medical School on leading digital transformation, and so this is one of the topics we discuss, is what can we learn from other industries in healthcare, what's different, you know, what's the same, and what you find is that there is a lot that is the same when you look at retail, financial services, even agriculture, supply chain. And basically what you find is it's really hard to do it well. The failure rate's high, by which I mean it takes too long or costs too much, or the results are not as exciting as people thought they would be when they started. But they also find that you have to remember that there's an objective in mind. It's not the technology. There's an outcome, such as improving the retail experience or improving the safety of care. So one of the things that is a common is focusing on the business or clinical objective. The second is making sure you really understand the customer and what they need, whether it's someone buying something for the holidays or whether it's someone who's seeking care. It matters that you know how to engage in change management that you successfully lead organizations and economies through the change. So the point being, KK, there's a lot that's the same. Uh, and we can learn from these other industries as they, you know, in some ways are ahead of us on healthcare. On the other hand, healthcare is very different. I mean, they, we're talking about the lives of people and the health of people, and we run the risk. If we do it poorly, we can hurt people, perhaps even kill them. Privacy can be quite different. People have different privacy ideas about their health care data than they necessarily do about what they bought for their home, uh, in terms of supplies, etc. The knowledge domain of medicine is vastly more complicated in terms of what you have to know to really take care of people. And then, KK, one give you one uh, example here. I teach a course in e-health at Wharton, a business school at the University of Pennsylvania. And one of my students had started a company, and a company was attaching devices and sensors to middle-aged men who had had a, you know, a heart attack uh, and had to go through rehab and sort of recover you know, from the heart attack. And so it would monitor the patient, transmit the results to the care team and so they could keep track of you know, activity and keep track of heart rate and things like that. And I said, well, how did it do? I mean, how did all this technology do? And he said, well, it was fine, but it turns out the most important thing in terms of whether you or I follow our you know rehab regime, because a lot of men don't, uh, is the degree to which the patient felt that the care team cared about them. In other words, the care team reached out and said, how are you doing? or we're, we're delighted to see you're really taking more steps or we're worried about your gaining weight. Point being is it's care. There's a the word C-A-R-E, very human undertaking, involving human beings reaching out to other human beings. Um, and that's a very different, there's just a depth difference in healthcare uh, goes here. So anyway, there's, we should learn from the other industries as much as we possibly can. Uh, but at the same time, remember uh, that the sort of human nature of this, the complexity of this is just very different.
1: John, uh, what are the learnings that we can say uh, we can use from other industry in digital health now that we have a vaccine which is coming and uh, uh, we probably will be distributing it to over a billion people in India and perhaps a couple of more billion people across the world? And, uh, you know, there's always a saying uh, there are philanthropic and think tanks which are talking about you know delivering the vaccine to the needy rather than those who can pay how can digital health really bring this equitable distribution and how can they solve this challenge
0: Yeah, I think, KK, there's, uh, when I look at the COVID uh, impact and how digital health helps with us collectively, globally, uh, deal with this pandemic, I think there's three phases that one worries. One is very immediate, very now, um, and that is vaccines are around the corner. Uh, How do you determine who should get it uh, and in what sequence? And if you say, I can't deliver it all in one day, I have to spread it out over months, who? You know, who's going to get it in May? Who's going to get it in February, et cetera? So how do I prioritize people? And I know in the States, for example, frontline healthcare workers or people who work in nursing homes, you know, or, or people who are very frail uh, should get it first, whereas people who are 25 will get it later uh, and who are healthy. So I think there's a there's an analytic challenge of and a political challenge, and frankly a humane challenge of lining up cohorts. You know, who gets it first? Even in a hospital, you know, you're, you're the CEO of a hospital and you get a series of doses. Where do you start? You know, which doctors do you start with which nurses do you start with what patients do you start with so we'll have to sort through that that may be a digital health challenge but that's probably more political uh, and humanitarian challenge and an economic challenge to go through but anyway very immediate phase of who gets it the second immediate phase is uh, how do i know that you've received it who I haven't i gotten to yet so there's a registry impact of how do we record the fact that you received it. Right. And particularly, and I don't know so much about the Indian vaccines, but some of the uh, vaccines in the States where there's two doses, have you had your first dose or your second dose or both doses, et cetera. And the third thing, and that very immediate, is this will take months to do, and in the meantime, the pandemic is spreading, and in the meantime, there is the influx of patients into intensive care units, and there is a concern of protective equipment that's got to go on. So the concerns we've had up to this point about managing capacity in hospitals or managing the supply chain, those don't go away once the vaccine is started. They may go away this time next year, but they will be in play months. But anyway, there's a very immediate near term that's got to go on here, et cetera. The second uh, term is well. We've done a lot of telehealth, you know, now in the meantime, but it, it happened very, very fast, uh, and in many ways, it was a um, you know, it was happened too fast. So we have to go back and cement uh, the activity and make sure it's well integrated into the protocols, et cetera. I'll make sure I'm still receiving. you. Are you still there?
1: Yes, I am.
0: Okay, your picture's frozen, so I'll keep going. Uh, okay. So, but anyway, I think you know we we have we had uh, uh, we have to take the telehealth. And, find, and make sure we understand clinically, what's the right time to use it, when should you not use it? How do you integrate it into practice operations? How do you compensate clinicians who may be paid face-to-face and now are not getting paid that way? Uh, In some cases in the states, privacy laws were relaxed, so what should the new privacy laws be? But we did a number of things very quickly to get a response up, telehealth, telework was an example. A lot of hospitals had to juggle capacity, you know, where do I put patients? Because I still have patients with cancer, still have patients with heart disease, so I have to manage capacity. So in the intermediate term, we'll have to sort of cement the gains or cement the changes that have gone on. And in the long term, KK, there was this discussion, well, there's a new normal that's coming through. And it's not just in healthcare. It's to really go to movies, to you really go to restaurants and a variety of things like that. A lot of people now buy so, uh, stuff through uh, e- you know, e-commerce, et cetera. And so there's a shift in e-commerce activity. So I think part of the discussion with uh, healthcare is what does the new normal look like? Uh, and to what degree is the digital front door more common? Or to what degree do the analytics have to change within the health system, et cetera? To what degree is telehealth now part and parcel of the fabric? So anyway, we have a very immediate crisis of immunization tracking and who gets it. A second one is saying we've we've done. We still have um, you know months of this stuff. So let's solidify, cement things like telehealth, and then a longer term of what does the new environment look like? Which is not just in healthcare; it's across all industries.
1: Excellent and well put, uh, uh, John. Uh, both from a immediate uh, to a long term perspective, I think there is a huge transformation that we are going to expect uh, in the new normal. Uh, John, very quickly, uh, I wanted to talk about you know uh, the whole you know coverage and the digital backbone that uh, U.S. put through over the years. You know, India is just starting off uh, with this whole initiative, which we announced uh, in August uh, by a prime minister. And uh, I would love to kind of break this whole topic in three three parts. One. Uh, you know, uh, what's been the U.S. experience? You know, uh, you know, how did U.S. go about it? What's your vision for a emerging market country like India? How should India kind of set its vision and 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 uh, you know for a huge digital health backbone system that uh, India is going to put together in the next few years' time to reach everyone everywhere in India? And thirdly, you know. How do we finance this sort of huge infrastructure cost? Uh, and, uh, you know, whether it's going to be through ta- additional taxes or through privacy. On, uh, you know, uh, transformation.
0: Yeah, I think and I was part of the government conversations in the states that created, or the, what they called, the meaningful use program, which was put into place in the you know 2008-2009 uh, timeframe, and it led to in these states 37 billion dollars being poured into the acceleration of the adoption of the electronic health record, and it went from essentially you know single-digit adoption to high 80s, high 90s percent adoption by hospitals and physician practice. So in you know the course of five or six years, it really did accelerate the adoption electronic health record. And I think a couple of things. One is it was it was it took advantage of the situation that there was a financial crisis. You may all remember the financial crisis of two thousand seven, two thousand eight. And in the states, there was a lot of interest in getting money out the door to invest in the economy to get the economy started again to get people back to work projects because a lot of unemployment was going high. And so this was part of that legislation. It was part of the legislation, but also funded buildings and roads and a variety. So it took advantage, frankly, of a crisis. Uh, actually, one of the things I think you when you do transfer. Transformations, digital and otherwise, take advantage of a crisis. You want to get out of the crisis, like the, the COVID pandemic, but take advantage of it to advance certain things here. But nonetheless, I think what the US government did, and it's a philosophy, and I have to be careful because I don't, you know, different countries have different philosophies. is basically the philosophy said, let's rely on the private sector to do the work here. The private sector is very innovative, it accomplishes a lot can be faster than the government, can be more innovative than the government, uh, but let's rely on the private sector to do this stuff, et cetera. Now, for that to happen, we have to motivate the private sector to invest, whether it's venture capital investments, whether it's people buying the technology, et cetera. And so if we want to advance digital health in the States, what was done was change or begin to change the way that hospitals and doctors were paid. So rather than being paid for volume, they were paid for quality and paid for being efficient. So if that's how you're going to get paid, you say, well, what tools are available to me to help me be higher quality and more efficient? Because that affects my income. And I want to be a good doctor, too. So part of what government can do, along with private sector payers, is change the payment or the incentive system that goes with this. Uh, Now, incentives can be how I pay you, but also regulatory, which says you're going to do this. That's the incentive. But anyway, so government's got a fist and a carrot or a stick and a carrot. That can apply. So I think that's part of it. And I think part of my, what I don't know enough about the Indian economy here is well, you know, what's the incentive? that's going to be created for people to adopt or clinicians, telehealth, or consumers? You know, How will you motivate the private sector to do all the things that it's going to do? I think on the other hand, you say, I'm government, and I realize there's a lot to like about the private sector, but I have to be careful about the private sector because it sometimes it fails. It doesn't do certain things that I'd like it to do. So for example, private sector isn't always very good at establishing standards. So interoperability standards or privacy standards. You know, you can't, you know, the privacy, they're private sector sometimes gets together with collaborations and creates a sort of industry wide approach to something. But I may, as a government decide, I need to step in here and help the private sector because it won't do it all by itself. So I think the other part of government is, well, where is it that I need uh, standards? I need privacy standards. I need data interoperability standards, et cetera. I need perhaps protocols on how to treat certain diseases, but I'm going to help set standards here, et cetera. The other thing that the um, government can do is say there are certain elements of the infrastructure um, that the I alone can solve. Private sector can't. So a countrywide identification, you had mentioned sort of the identification of individuals. Government can do that because the private sector really can't. Not, no, no one actor in the private sector or a small number of actors can, you know, make that happen. Government has to help make that happen. Funding it, guiding it, et cetera. So I think government in part of this is, look, the Indian government is saying, well, what is it that, first of all, I think the main thing, what is it we want to have happen? so at five years from now we're looking at the health of the citizens of india what do we want to see what are our goals here and our goals might be reducing infant mortality our goals might be increasing lifespan our goals might be but whatever it is there's a set of healthcare goals given that and that's critical in fact when your other question about what do you learn from other industries they when they were successful they had those goals in front of them they knew what they were trying to accomplish and the question was how does digital help us accomplish all those so I think for the government and the country as a whole what are the goals and then what is it we want the technology to be and which of those should we rely on the private sector to deal with and what should we rely on government to deal with where government has to step in now, that's a complicated conversation and it's a conversation that you have to have now but it's a conversation you have to revisit from time to time because as you go into it, you learn certain things say, Well, that didn't work as well as we thought it would we have to shift course or adjust or whatever might have to go on, but anyway, that's the uh, thing: is how do you finance it? Well, some of it's out of tax dollars because the infrastructure element is going to be, you know, publicly funded. Uh, when you convene groups to do privacy and standards, you have to pay. You know, there's some cost to do that, um, and some of the financing is if I have a healthcare budget in the country and I want certain gains to occur, I'm hoping that those gains will help offset the cost of this. You know, that I'll spend less on healthcare, or the healthcare you or I get KK will be less expensive healthcare because we're keeping. Being as healthy, but also part of the government is I need to improve the social well-being of my citizens, and whether it's education or whether it is you know the you know ability to stay warm you know in, in a cold night or healthcare, and that and I'm not expecting a return out of an investment. That's just what I pay for, et Anyway, I think there's a financial partly taxed, partly to the degree the government's a purchaser of care. Is that the efficiencies of that purchasing or care leads to certain gains for the government?
1: Well put, uh, John. Uh, uh, let's uh, switch uh, topics, John, to your core areas of uh, you know uh, uh, of what you have done so far working in industry and uh, and also working um, in, uh, in 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 uh, certain product companies and also as CIO of Howard Medical, which is obviously one of the mecca of healthcare i would say uh john uh, you know i i remember reading something um, about you know the challenges of integrating different systems that happened at harvard yeah. and you know you know the whole issue about the whole medical fraternity going against it and we have had this sort of uh, you know miscarriages in india as well the medical fraternity is always viewing these technology interventions with uh, a lot of doubt whether it will succeed how will it affect my yeah, business sure. of, of delivering healthcare and this whole change management issue and that is the reason why in india the whole telemedicine act was you know stuck up for almost 10 15 years uh, and only could uh, be you know approved with the medical council of india which is the leading uh, physician body and and the body for healthcare uh, during the covid because you couldn't do anything you could yeah. only use telemedicine as a tool and as uh, as a digital health application to be able to work with uh, the consumers and the patients so i would personally like to bring out your experience of you know what you have gone through a day in your life at at the whole when the whole uh, you know <laughs> thing hit the hit the top uh, at harvard and uh, how you manage those challenges working with the the medical and the clinical uh, teams and and ensuring that whole success of the initiatives at at harvard and elsewhere as well
0: yeah okay i think it's it's complicated and hard uh, at a level and i think yeah, what can enable a person to be successful in an organization like the Harvard Medical School or the teaching hostels, Mass General, Brigham and Women's, that are part of it, is different than what can be a person to be successful at a country level. But there is some overlap, but there's some differences there. What I found in working with the medical staff or the clinical staff overall, I mean, it's not just the doctors, it's the nurses, it's the pharmacists, it's you know, all those folks, et cetera, um, is that there's a couple. Things. One is they have to see you as being a credible, honest, person, you know, that you will get things done. So if you walk into the room and there's a, your reputation precedes you, but that reputation is, you don't stand a chance in terms of persuading them to do much of anything. If They mistrust you or think you're an idiot, you know, or you got some other agenda going on here, whatever. So I think you have to earn, earn the right to be listened to and earn the right to be trusted. You go through. So that's part of it. And that takes a little bit of time, To They don't know you necessarily when you start. Uh, You know, sometimes you'll do things where you screwed up uh, and people wonder what did you, you know, what was that all about, et cetera. So but anyway, you you do that. Uh, You earn the trust and you develop the relationships, et cetera. The second thing you have to do is sometimes we treat these folks as if they're roadblocks. They're in the way. You know, they're. I want to do something good and they're being cave people, you know, they're being Luddites, uh, you know, slowing me down, et cetera. And there's, some, there's some, sort of some other, you know, type of human being, not my kind of human being, some other type of human being, et cetera. Say, well, that's a mistake. They're real people and they have real concerns and they can be legitimate, real concerns. You know, they're saying, I don't know whether it's going to hurt my practice or not hurt my practice. I'm getting income of a certain level. Are you going to cause me to lose income, et cetera? I feel very competent in the way I'm doing now. You want me to learn new things? Maybe I'll feel as competent because I don't know how to do this and I'll feel Poor. I feel bad. You know, or I feel like I'm. Uh, you know, just starting my training, et cetera. They have real needs, real concerns, and real issues, and you better understand those uh, with your. And not to dismiss them. Now, you can dismiss some people. You know, there's always a tale of people who are just you know bad news. Uh, but by and large, it is listening to them, and by and large, engaging in a discussion. So the discussion might be, I remember this KK years ago, having provider order entry, where we're going to introduce the idea of typing into a computer. And the order, laboratory tests, would get checked, clinically checked, transmitted to the department, carry out the order. And so we're saying to the doctor, I want you to write these orders. And they say, yeah, but I just do it on the chart right now. Why do you want me to do that? Uh, it'll cost me time. And I say, well, that's safer. And they say, yeah, but I'm not this guy who's making the mistakes. That other doctor, you should make him do it because, you know, he or she's making it. How do I persuade you to do this type of thing where it's costing you time? And part of it is the discussion with them. And part of it was using data that says, look, not, you know, I'm not singling you as a doctor, but overall, we have real safety issues here. You know, medication errors are really going on here. And people said, that's awful. You know, we can't, that's counter to who we are. Uh, We engaged them in the discussion, engaged them in the data, and did certain things to help it make, you know, the, the entry easier, training and technology, et cetera. So I think the main thing, and it's a slow, it takes time. You know, sometimes I get this sense digital transformation twelve months from now will be transformed. Nonsense. It takes years to transform, etc. So it takes time to roll these things out to learn. And part of where the doctors say, listen, now that case has been made, I'm gonna introduce this step at a time. So we can take a step, learn, take a step, learn, take a step, learn. We will do this together and learn and so that you I'm gonna avoid overwhelming you uh, and breaking things, frankly. So I think you know it's a classic change management process, but I think the key is, you know, making sure that you remember they have legitimate needs and are legitimate concerns and that you have a reputation of working with them to solve things. They want to be better doctors. They want to do a good job, but they also want to send their kids to college and they also want to retire. They want to do a bunch of things here, et cetera. So just being conscious of that. Anyway, that's the the main things I think to take take into consideration when you lead these kind of transformations in these organizations.
1: I think, John, solid uh, nuggets of wisdom uh, that you have uh encapsulated in the last uh, few minutes of your talk uh, it's not all about tech it's not all about digital you got to look at the user and the clinical guy who's actually going to benefit and deliver the benefit to the end consumer uh-huh. i think that's going to be a very solid t- key takeaway for the people who are planning for all these products and services back here at home and i think uh, I'm sure uh, they need to be cognizant of this fact. Uh, Moving on, uh, talk about you know you as a person, and uh, you know before I come back onto other digital-related issues, you know what impressed me uh, when I met you first at uh, at the Harvard Medical Office was your ability and your vision when we were talking about, you know, putting the whole precision medical uh, medicine uh, system at at Harvard partners, Uh you know, you know, and it takes uh, years of experience to be able to kind of, you know, talk about it in a very, in a very free and a very layman language, which really, you know, got me to buy in. And uh, typically what I see is healthcare tech executives uh, at a senior level, sometimes just a source s- seeped in into technology and uh, technology mumbo jumbo that yeah. they just lose out the whole, you know, what's the whole purpose? What, what are you there for? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I like, you know, you two probably, and you've been, you've been awarded so many industry awards as top-notch CIO, health executive and whatnot. I like you to probably talk about it, uh, uh, you know, what would one needs to do to be a successful healthcare tech executive or a product executive like you in the industry? Because there are so many wannabes in India who want to do something, but they, they are just too tech oriented and just don't understand what it needs to go to the next level.
0: Yeah. Well, i complicated. It's a great question, KK. Okay, okay, all of these have been great questions. It's a you know complicated answer. I mean, part of it is is people have studied leadership. So, what makes great leaders? You know, they're intelligent. They have good emotional intelligence. They have they're mostly even keeled. You know, bad news doesn't rattle them all that much. Here, they're charismatic. So, part of it is you know does an individual have the basic wherewithal, frankly, to be a great leader? Not everybody does. You know, just be honest with us. Not everybody does. But part of that is really being candid with yourself. You know, I either have or I don't have, and. And maybe there's some things I can work on. I think the second thing is, as is a, is a leader, is part of it's scar tissue. You know, it's just doing things and learning. It's like raising children. I mean, there's no way in the world that you can read a book about raising a kid and be fully comfortable and confident. You have to learn about it. You know, the adolescent to teenager girl is giving you a lot of garbage about doing this or doing that, et cetera. So part of it is experience, is just learning about experience and you can learn from mentors and part of it's just getting out there yourself. And I think the third is to realize that, um, you know the w- way things get done is through team it's not for you to be the hero it's for your team to be the hero so defer to them take care of them listen to them you know help them help you be brilliant at this thing so part of it is saying you know sometimes you get young people says it's got to be me i gotta no you don't have to do it you just have to make sure it gets done so leverage the the skills and the talents of those surrounding you i think regarding you know, the, your opening comments about, you know, the, the language here, et cetera. I think it, the tech executive, you've got to do a couple of things. One is do not fall in love with your technology. Sometimes people get seduced by the technology, the shiny object. It's, you know, what I call, and I actually have a Harvard Business Review article that came out last week on the shiny object and how people get seduced by it. You know, they get into what I call advanced states of technical arousal, which is, oh, this, you know, shiny object thing, et cetera. Uh, remember, it's a tool. Its its job is to get something done. Now, the person you're talking to may think, may be all excited about the shiny object, but basically they want to get something done. They want to make care safer. They want to make it more accessible, whatever you know, supply chain, whatever it is they want to do, they want to get something done. So don't get all excited about the technology, get all excited about how it helps them get something done you know, make sure you understand, here's how we can help you get something done that matters to you. So number one is don't fall in love with the technology. View it as a tool, be very sort of blunt about it, et The second is to really understand to the degree that you can, you know, their world and how they think about it. And I'll give you an example, KK. Okay, okay. Um, when I was at you know at the Harvard Medical School and the teaching hospitals, et cetera, that was for twenty-two years I did that. And I was involved in lots and lots of meetings. I mean hundreds of meetings, probably thousands of meetings over the time. And not one of those meetings was the word customer ever used. Never. It was a patient. We take care of patients. If you use the word customer, it implied that you were dishing out cheeseburgers, you know, or selling used cars, et cetera. That's not what we do. We take care of patients. It's part of the culture, it's part of the mission. You had better understand that. And so if you walk into the room and start talking about their customers, they, they say, you don't get it. You don't have our you don't think. And talk like we talk. So you need to talk like they talk. Have the thought process. They're very mission-driven. They care about taking care of the poor. Uh, now, if you're selling tires on a car, you don't really care about taking care of the poor. You're not oblivious to taking care of the world, but you don't really care about taking the poor, not like they do. So I think the other is to really understand that setting. And part of it is spending time with them. Part of it is having colleagues who will, who will be your guides, et cetera. So that's the second one, is make sure you understand their world, their vocabulary, you know, the things that are important. The third thing that I would do, KK, is if you can, and I used to do this when we would teach healthcare uh, executives how to be CIOs in healthcare, teach. Teach at a college level, graduate level, undergraduate level, community college, you know, whatever it is, teach or teach at executive education. There's nothing like getting up in front of a room full of people. They're bright they're spending time here, but they don't know what you know. And in some ways they're not sure why they should care what you know, et cetera. So I want you to explain, you to try this KK, you know, go home and uh, I, you know, maybe, I don't know what, you know, you bet you have kids, but go home and your significant other and explain artificial intelligence and make sure he or she doesn't go into a coma as a result of this kind of stuff. we we'll say, wow, that's interesting. So learn how to teach, you know, learn how to take complicated ideas like your technology and convey it in straightforward terms to a person who's smart, does want to get it but has no interest in going deep with you on this topic and if you start going deep or start using acronyms you'll lose them you know it's just like you'll lose a student a student will tune you out uh, and start playing space games or whatever it is they're going to play on this thing so anyway i think that you know the the you know set of you know things are you know above and beyond being you know a leader etc is to you know learn about their vocabulary and how they think about the world uh and also to learn you know start learning about teaching and what that's like, et cetera. So anyway, I think that's that's uh, it's hard for a tech executive. Uh, and I think what it takes for a tech executive is mentors. And maybe they're board members, maybe they're colleagues. You know, I'm, I'm older than you are, but you know, people with gray hair who could put their arm around their shoulder and say, I want to tell you, you know, you got to do this better or that better.
1: Excellent, uh, John. I think uh, the last two responses to my questions definitely are strong key takeaways uh, to the audience and our listeners here i really appreciate uh, you being very open and candid with me john now let's kind of switch to the future so next five years john uh, what are the technologies or emerging technologies that you're going to punt in digital health what's your kind of take uh, on the future of digital health that it can be all pervasive on the surface of earth
0: yeah well, I think KK, there's there's a couple of answers to that. One is is that uh, even if you froze the technology progress today, we still have a lot of work to do to take that which we already have and put it effectively into place. You know, whether it's telehealth, or the electronic health record, or decision support. So, you know, we we certainly will take advantage of the new technology, but let's we're not waiting. I mean, our progress shouldn't be waiting for those. Those will help us, but let's take you know let's keep working on this thing here. So, I think there's that's part of it. The other part of it. It's always struck me is so if you go back over, you know, IT use in business, you know, back into the 60s, which you think you find about every decade, a category of technology comes along that changes the world. The world's different uh, because of it. So in the 60s, it was the mainframe. In the 70s, it was the mini computer. In the 80s, it was a network personal computer. In the 90s, it was the web. I mean, so, you know, Amazon was founded in 1994. Google in 1998. In the year 2000, it was, or the decade of 2000, it was a network mobile uh, personal device. So the iPhone, you know, came out in 2007. And this current decade, uh, I think it's artificial intelligence that's going to come through. Now, each of these changes the world. Now, one of the things you find about that, one of the sort of odd clockwork, you know, every 10 years is a new one coming through here, is that it takes time. You you see them play out, their impact play out over many years, for example. So for example, if you look in the States, last year, 2019, what percent of retail revenue was done through e-commerce versus somebody going into the store, uh, physical store? And the answer is 12% was done. 88% was still people going into stores, physical stores, et cetera. So you say in the 26 years since Amazon has been founded, we've gone from 0 to 12%. Now, that's not quite fair because books is a lot more, consumer electronics is a lot more, food less so, et cetera. Point is, it takes decades, sometimes, for the impact to play through of these profound technologies. So you're learning about, for the example, on the web today is the impact on elections. And certainly in the States, I don't know as much about the Indian elections, et cetera, about how you know the web is used to influence elections. Uh, so anyway, there is these technologies. So we'll see in the five years, those still play through, we'll still the impacts of the web still play through, the mobile devices still play through, artificial intelligence still be part of that, uh, etc. So, it'll be part of the maturation of profound technologies. That being said, the areas that I think are gonna be most impactful, one is the progressive application of intelligence to the core systems. And this is sort of AI broadly, you know, but for example, okay, okay you know, my wife bought this SUV, you know, Volvo. It couldn't crash it if you wanted to, it, you know, make sure you don't drift in the lane, don't get too close, you do this, that, and the others, and there's 38 machines. Processors in that uh, particular piece of equipment. So it's the application of intelligence in, you know, MRIs and in devices you and I have on us, uh, and in uh, looking at large amounts of data to do comparative effectiveness of treatments or guiding a doctor's decision, et cetera. So one is the progressive introduction of intelligence along the way. The second is there's extraordinary advances in sensors that are, you know, being able to measure stuff like, you know, the watch that I have that measures blood pressure and heart rate, etc. And, you know, it's, uh, things that look at depending on, you know, your iPhone and your pedometer uh, is to what degree your gait, you know, the way you walk suggests dementia is on its way here. So sensors will be impactful, etc. So I think that'll be the sort of second major area that we go on. And I think the third or last is our increasing ability to leverage very large amounts of data uh, to look at at, you know, it, things that impact health, to look at new treatments of drugs, uh, to look at p- ways that current interventions are hurting people, to look at outcomes, et cetera. So it's going to be a very exciting time, KK. I wish I were 20 years younger so that I could make sure that I lived all the way through that which is to come.
1: I'm sure we, uh, with digital health and all the interventions and your connect, uh, you're going to live longer.
0: I hope so. I've counted on, I've count on <laughs> you, KK, to come through for me.
1: Right. Uh... Excellent uh, John, I think uh, you know you've summarized uh, a lot uh, on on. Uh, on uh, on our talk and uh, solid nuggets of wisdom. I just want to pick your brains on sure. the downside. You know, you know, we have seen some failures, heavy duty failures, not only in healthcare, but in our digital at a national level as well in our country. Right and. Uh, I like to understand, uh, John, uh, as a senior executive, what are those things that you would probably look at to kind of uh, mitigate the risk of execution failure of any digital health uh, initiative, which is going to be very far and wide reaching?
0: Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple of things, KK. There's a lot of failures. You're right. You look across the globe, states, UK, other places, etc., where there've been failures, big ones. You know, a lot of taxpayer yeah. money was I mean, you know, it was wasted.
1: I worked at NHS also at, yeah. at at some point in time, and huge, you know, money poured in, but you know, huge disaster. As yeah, well, yeah. And uh, I think as part of the what was the intent to the yeah. final outcome.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, and, you know, you have mentioned before about some of the, the government of India's investments or impending investments in digital health, et cetera. And I think it would be wise as part of that is to learn from these other, you know, countries that have been successful, uh, but also countries that have not been successful, you know, what's going on and why, et cetera. My perspective is a couple of things. One is that at times countries get excited with building something. We're going to build this infrastructure, and they forget why they are building it. You know, and they lose track of the objectives, the overall purpose, et cetera. So it loses context. And pretty soon people say, why are we spending all this money for this beautiful, this thing we're building, et cetera. They don't forget why it's there. You know, because that money is not being spent on something else. We say, geez, we could be spending that money on this or spending that money on that. Why are we spending on this? So they lose lose sight of why uh, and get all excited. It goes back to the shiny object thing about this. The second thing they do is they don't do a very good job of mobilizing politically, you know, of sort of getting the constituents behind it who need to be behind it and who can see for you for any sector, you know, whether it's the doctors or the nurses or those who pay for care, et cetera, you have to be able to answer to them, what's in it for me? And they're very clear. What's, what, do I, what do I get out of it? Or what does my community get out of it? And it better be clear and tangible. And none of this sort of high level, well, care will be better. That's not good enough, frankly. It's got to be much more direct than that. So they don't do a very good job of doing that. And they don't very good job of building a coalition, submitting a coalition. The third, and I think this is particularly a problem with governments, is the change in leadership that happens. So a lot of these initiatives take long periods of time. You know, it used to be, so studies done a while back said if you really were going to digitally transform an organization, a company, you need five to seven years to do this, to really get through it uh, on this kind of stuff here. Which, and you probably need more time if you're going to transform a country, you know, at a particular level. Now the problem can be is you change leadership. Too often, so the new team comes in and says, "What is this all about?" Or they don't quite believe it, et cetera. So things don't get far enough along to be cemented. So I think part of the question is how do you sustain it? Make sure that you can sustain it over periods of time, et cetera. And then the last piece that I would do is is to uh, move incrementally. Most successful changes, uh, profound changes, don't take a big leap. They don't go from here to there in a very short period of time. They take a step and learn, they take a step and learn, they take a step and learn, they take a step and learn. So there's this highly incremental, highly iterative short cycle learning process that says, We can see this far ahead. That's what we can really see. Let's see if we're right here, et cetera. They can't see this far ahead. It's too far away. It's like you and I, if you went back to the 90s and said, all right, John and Kiki, let's imagine a a world in which you had a mobile device attached to you through a high-speed internet and it knew where you were. You and I couldn't see all the things that would happen. And similarly, if you go back to March and said, how will the pandemic affect us? I don't think we would have seen all the impacts either. So you can't see too far ahead. So anyway, those are the kinds of things that, I, first of all, I would learn from a whole bunch of others. But I remember, why am I here you know, going off on this particular thing? You know, I'd make sure that I had some continuity of leadership going on through, uh, and I'd make sure that I sort of did a you know, stepwise, and I'd also make sure I built coalition in a way that was strong.
1: Now, coming from here, uh, continuity of uh, political uh, uh, leadership, uh, what's going to happen now? Trump care or uh, uh, back to Obama care?
0: well i think you know we, we, my my belief is is that you know we have an incoming president like president biden trump is fighting this but i don't i don't think he'll win at the end but so then, nonetheless and so we'll have a Democrat and sort of the democratic political leanings on this thing. I think what's also happened, KK, is coming out of this pandemic, a lot of people lost their jobs and lost their health insurance. Right. The U.S. is a very employer-based health insurance thing. And so, and a lot of people got scared, you know, about healthcare and, you know, they. The, if you look at personal bankruptcies in the U.S., half of them are due to medical bills, et cetera. So there will be fear about the loss of coverage you know, and being able to go to the hospital because you've lost their job or because you know you were on a ventilator for six weeks, which is ugh. So I suspect there will be a return to some form of universal coverage that will go on. Now the US has, you know, it's not going to do, you know, like some other countries, it'll it'll sort of uh, you know fill in the gap, so to speak, here between whatever your employer covers, et cetera. But I think there will be a resurrection of a form of Obamacare. In other words, of ensuring broad coverage just because the, the public has been scared by us
1: do Great and uh, which is also what uh, India is. It's also a kind of. Like the American model, you have people paying out of pocket. You have your insurers, you have the employers and the government. But uh, you see uh, in terms of uh, as a percent of GDP. America is almost 1718 percent yeah. of GDP and india spends only about three percent of gdp obviously this year the government promises or the industry interaction says that the government will increase it to maybe four to five percent of gdp yeah. now with this sort of a, you know backdrop and obviously you know we we are not meeting all the millennium development goals as far as uh Healthcare is concerned, whether it's maternal mortality, infant mortality, and several other, you know, mm-hmm. targets that uh, you know India is a signatory to, and at the same time we have huge shortage of infrastructure. You know, we just to reach three beds uh, to a thousand population, we need to invest three hundred billion dollars. Yeah, just to come to a global average. So I'm sure you know these sort of constraints. In our healthcare system, would uh, probably lead to a huge transformation out of digital health. What India did—mobile telephony, uh, in in in—and you know, leapfrog from you know analog yeah. straight into mobile—is what people are punting here in India as well. That perhaps uh, we will probably leapfrog. Given that we have 700 to 800 million subscribers on the mobile phone, and we would probably be the mobile-first digital health kind of a, a system yeah. that we will create uniquely for India. Uh, what do you think? Uh, you know, uh, is there some risk here, or are we punting on the right uh, investments on mobile, or do we need to go again because healthcare is? uh fairly risk averse and there are risk of lives where do you think uh, india should probably be you know dabble and test the waters before yeah. we go all hog well it's
0: it's it's a complicated answer because there's so many things you want to fix in any healthcare system, whether it's India or the U.K. or the U.S. I mean, you want access to be better. You know, you want uh, it to be more efficient at a level. You want uh, people to be healthier in their lives. You want you know, all kinds of stuff you want to do. And you say, well, I, and I can't just focus on one, but not the other. I have to spread my efforts, and, you know, in some ways across the board. I can't ignore the safety issue, for example, et cetera. So I think there's a there's a political, social, society discussion about the priorities. And that, you know, and it happens every country. You know, what are the priorities here? Uh, to go off, and you know, another priority is innovation. To what degree do we prize innovation versus not prize innovation, et cetera. So anyway, there's a complicated political, social discussion that's going on. That being said, one of the things that I would say is, you know, what I would do is leverage assets where you say Already got a strong asset of this, uh, perhaps pretty pervasive digital uh, mobile infrastructure to be able to leverage that. And I can solve certain things that go on here. Um, and so I'm going to take advantage of the ability to deliver care remotely. And I'm going to take advantage of the ability of people to use the technology to manage and monitor their own health. You know, for example, there are a couple of, there are some things I can't do with the, that I may not have as quite the leg up on analyzing very large volumes of data to look for trends. You know, that won't inherently give me that, but that's a, perhaps a separate set of investments. So I think it's fair to say, well, given whatever the priorities of the country are, is let's let Leverage and infrastructure that we have, and it's not just the technology—the fact that a lot of citizens have the technology—but it's also when you look around the innovative landscape. Where are the startup companies? You know, what are they working? All these bright folks we have—you know, well-educated, motivated people—what are they working on? Let's leverage that uh, and take advantage of that, et cetera. And let's also work on the incentive system. So, if a new app comes out, why would people pick it up? Why would they adopt it, et cetera? So, I think that's a great place to start. There's a. you know, part of me said, well, we, you know, to what degree do we need to move more electronic health records in hospitals or physician practices? How do we go off do that? To what degree do we look, need to look at big data, to look, again, as patterns of trends, et cetera? So I think there's this multifaceted, but nonetheless, take advantage of a situation in a context, you know, that says we already have this uh, set of infrastructure leverage. Let's leverage that as far as we possibly can, but let's not neglect other areas that perhaps we will need to do because, you know, the healthcare agenda in any country has got multiple things it's trying to accomplish.
1: You talked about startup, and that's uh, a, a, a topic very close to my heart as yeah. well. Uh, John, I have been investing and looking at uh, multiple startups in the US ecosystem as well. Yeah. And uh, kind of visited a lot of uh, academic medical s- uh, centers like Mayo and uh, UCSD and, and what have you, and met a uh, whole host of uh, accelerators on the health tech side. Now you know what I feel, uh, John, and uh, even at Harvard Medical, we tried to do that whole initiative as well on on um, uh, uh, genomics uh, side of things. Uh-huh. Uh, you see, uh, the startups in the US have limited uh, market, and hence their price points for their innovation is very huge. While on the other hand. And this is what I keep telling to some of the startups as well. If you're looking for scale, then come to India. You got billion population. And uh, you don't need to scale down your technology to be able to reach a certain price point, which will be much more accessible and affordable for the Indian population. And this is a entrepreneurs dream and juggle to say, okay, you know, what do I do? Cut my tech, do this or do that. Uh And we have had certain success stories and imitations as well in the past uh, internet uh, technologies. I mean, I have been part of a journey of a competitor to Uber, which is number two in India. Uh And we've seen some journeys like that as well as an investor. Uh, How do we go and uh, bring this whole ecosystem, east-west ecosystem together on the digital startup and innovation front?
0: Well, it's a fair question. And I don't know to what degree there are in place already, you know, some form of mechanisms which attempt to do between the two countries, you know, exchange of uh, investments, exchange of ideas, you know, whether it's in digital health or energy or whatever, so I don't know, there may be some existing. You know, infrastructure there, I'd be curious, you know, through the respective governments of and maybe even state-sponsored activity through you know, the Department of Commerce in the U.S., for example. So anyway, I just don't know what's in there. The other is um, I can see where if you're a young, smart set of individuals and you're in the San Francisco Bay Area or you're in Atlanta, Georgia, and you say, come to India, they say, ah, but I don't understand the Indian market. You know, I don't know anything about that. Um, and I'm worried. I'm worried enough about trying to get this stuff to sell in the U.S. to go to a market where I just don't know anything. You know, it's far away. And all that other stuff is how you help them you know go off and to do that kind of stuff. so i suspect there is a an outreach program and perhaps a lot of forms you could imagine that one is you know, uh, invest whether it's venture capital or private equity or whatever it is, firms in India actually establish offices, you know, in various parts of the US. And so that you're competing, you know, you're competing with uh, Google Ventures and other people to go off and to get, you know, the sort of access, invest in the talent, et cetera. The other part is you can imagine that says, well, I'm actually, I want to do that, but I also want to have relationships with the Andrews and Horowitz or the, you know, F prime or whatever they are, uh, such that if they make an investment in a company, that I help them reach the Indian market to go off and do that. So they'll be perhaps prime in a way, but I'm going to be a sub to help them. So anyway, there may be a couple of ways that you can you know, tap or, you know, tap into you know, that particular market to go off and do this. But anyway, I don't know. And I, so I don't know what you could leverage is already in place. Uh, and there may you guys may have already had some thoughts about how best to sort of work with that startup or work with the, the ecosystem in the States presently that helps to you know, fund these undertakings.
1: Yeah, we've been working with a couple of Bay Area VCs and couple of angels uh, yeah. in the Bay Area and Boston area where we have some connects. We exchange ideas. Yeah. try to get this whole thing moving. John. Uh, uh, before I let you go, I want to and this is a s- subject that uh, you know both of us keep struggling in as part of the in you know, the whole data repository for yeah. digital health, right? Maybe when I was born, there were only a few indicators that that one would capture. Uh, 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 say 50 years back, you know, your pulse or your X-ray and a few parameters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then you got into a whole host of other diagnoses. Then your genomics came by the year 2000. So our data sets have been increasing. Yeah. Right, as part of our whatever you may call as the patient record or electronic medical record, and what have you. And then you have your other set of variables, which is with this last decade of Apple Watch and you know, other mm-hmm. set of things which is also innovating. And to cross segment that, we are having other sets of data which we are compiling with the movement, with you know, other you know sensors across Google and whatnot that they are collecting from purchase history and whatnot. This whole data explosion that's happened over the last, maybe I would say 20 years plus within the hospital environment, there's a whole host of digital data pharmacy uh, lab, uh, your radiology and and whatnot. And on top of it, now we're talking of a very variables, your other things to reimagine and and do other things. Are we overdoing this whole digital thing uh, and making it more complex or is it going to solve a lot of the problems for the caregiver and the clinician at hand uh, at the end? So what's your take? How can we simplify this whole data repository that Google and all these guys are collecting? I know at one point in time I was talking to uh, Optum uh, CEO, and I was working and he said, look over last uh, whatever 40 years of United Health, we have claimed data which is getting into how many million teraflops, yeah, yeah. which have never been analyzed. Oh,
0: I'm sorry. So I think, you know, um, what I, I don't know that we know yet, KK, I think if you say, look, at the end of the day, what I really want to make sure that I have for all individuals in my country is the plan for the health. How am I to manage the health of John Glasser? How am I going to manage the health of KK? What has to happen to keep you and me healthy and out of the hospital and taking our medications, et cetera, or if I actually need a surgical procedure, let me get my hip replaced, what's the plan, you know, to do the procedure, to get me through rehab, et cetera? So so I want to have a plan, and I want that plan to be effective. Now, for the plan to be effective, I have to be able to characterize the person who the plan addresses. I need to know how old John is, I need to know what medications he takes, I need to know what you know, promises God, et cetera. So I have to characterize John. And that's what, I mean, in order to really get a right plan, I got to characterize them, and probably the better I can characterize them, the better my plan will be, et cetera. It's like when you buy stuff on e-commerce; the degree really knows what you like to buy and about bought before. It can help sort of guide you in the decisions here. Now you might say, "Well, I don't need that much more." If John's diabetic, I know a lot just by that one phrase. And if John's poor, I know a lot by that one phrase. If John lives alone; I know a lot. Uh, so in some ways, I may not need a lot of data to really get the core plan out for John. You know, John has dementia, or John's 85 and frail, et cetera. We say, well, on the other hand, I'm not sure yet to what degree. So if I take your clinical data, it's hard enough to get all your clinical data, you know, from the doctor's office and from the hospitals, et cetera. And I'm going to add what they call social determinants of health. I want to know whether you're poor. I want to know whether you can get uh, food, you know, where you live here. You know, I want to know whether you're in places where there is sort of, you know, fresh water, for example. I want to, so I know social determinants. I also want to know your behaviors, you know, to what degree are you sedentary or not sedentary or eating a good diet or a poor diet and I want to know your genetic makeup and I want to know the wearables that you have and I might want to know at some point your gut floor because that turns out the biome has a lot here so all this data and say well does this data help me really characterize that plan and do a much better job of precisely doing what I really need you to get here and say, I don't know but we know we know that if you for example if I said your patient's diabetic uh, that adding the fact that the patient also lives alone and has cognitive issue tells you a lot about what you can do and not do. So, you that happens a lot here. The fact that, that your patient is having a wearable, which shows these sort of unexplained variations in heart rate from time to time, tells you a lot. So, you can, anyway, I think one of the things we'll learn okay, is we bring this massive amount of data together, and we're increasingly getting better at bringing massive amounts of data together, yeah. is to apply, and this is where it goes back to one of the comments, is sort of applying a variety of forms of <laughs> intelligence to say, can we determine patterns in here that really help us characterize the plan here? So, so anyway, 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 at some point you don't. You just need some basic stuff to get started, taking care of someone. But on the other hand, I think we're still exploring, is what's the right collection of data in what what circumstance that really helps me as a person and as my care team take care of me.
1: (coughs) Sorry. That's all right. So John, my last question, you know, this whole COVID crisis and the acceleration to digital uh, has thrown a lot of talent gaps. And uh, now with our bigger national level digital initiatives that will start rolling out, I don't know where we have the talent uh, to do all this whole digitization. Yeah. But, uh, back in India, you know, uh, uh, you know, US could rely on the talent supply from India. UK for the NHS uh, rollout plan could uh, rely the talent supply from India, the techies yeah. and the engineers. I'm not sure whether India can uh, actually go down to Africa to get that sort of talent, yeah. trained talent. And uh, uh, how do you think uh, we can actually create a, you know, a, a talent supply chain to probably fulfill the post-COVID new normal that uh, digital health will require?
0: Oh, I, it's, a, it's a great question, and it's one that's been a problem forever. So you go back a couple of years getting web developers. You just couldn't do it, you know, or at the time of, uh, you know, ERPs. You just couldn't get ERP talent if your life depended on it, uh, et cetera. So, I, and right now, there's, you look at data science. Everybody wants to be a data scientist, and we need a lot of them. So I think, a couple of things you do, you know, one of which is you, you to the degree you can. You say, I'm going to reach across borders. I'm going to reach into Eastern Europe. You know, I'm going to reach into the Far East. I'm going to reach wherever I can reach. That's not always easy to do It can be hard to really have a remote workforce and, you know, leverage those folks. But anyway, I'm going to relax whatever organizational or state boundaries I have just to find the talent and I have to be competitive, I have to pay well, I have to have interesting work, you know, events for promotion. That's, you know, not always easy to do. So that's one. And people have been doing that for a while. And sometimes they do it themselves. Sometimes they turn to outsourcers. who said I can bring, you know, a hundred thousand, not a hundred thousand, but a hundred people, you know, whatever it is I can bring here. I do think there's a part that says I've got to train tomorrow's workers, you know, not only just the 18-year-olds and the 20-year-olds, but frankly, people who are 40-year-old and lost their job, you know, because there's obviously, you know, in the U.S., you know, a lot of restaurant workers lost their jobs because of restaurants being closed, perhaps in India too. Um, So I have to have training programs. Um, Now, some of those will happen because entrepreneurs will step in. So if you look at the number of programs in the States, which give you a master's degree in data science it's just skyrocketing because the kids want it that's a real job i get paid a lot of money to do that and sometimes it takes government to help fund you know to kickstart some of these programs it was the case in the us so i think there's a combination of get what you can globally the other is, um, you know, help working with government and sometimes industry collaborate to set up these programs. That's more of a long-term bet because, you know, it takes a couple of years for people to get educated. It takes a couple of years for them to become proficient, et cetera. So, you know, you start them training them tomorrow and in three years, they might be ready for you. I'm right, to go off and do this here. But right, that's going to be a problem, you know, is to, is to get all the so talent on that on we top need of to that, get.
1: We'll have to get the digital domain also experience. Yeah, You know, first is just a digital and then, you know, the healthcare.
0: Right, right. exactly right. Uh,
1: so it's a much more long drawn uh, kind of issue that uh, we would be challenged to uh, when we kind of see this whole explosion of uh, digital health. Yeah, yeah. John, uh, it has been a real pleasure interacting with you today and uh, I do hope to bring uh, you to India very soon. Let's hope the COVID and all this situation uh, subsides to have a dialogue with our government since you have spent time with uh, President Bill Clinton on his plans and uh, with the U.S. government and spent a lot of time with the industry as well. It would be an honor to have you here, but i really love to thank you uh, for having a candid chat with me on quote-unquote with KK. Uh, Before I let you go, I just need to make a few announcements for our audience. Uh, Our podcast is live on Kapil Khandelwal, backslash podcast and uh, all our previous podcasts are also available there. Uh, Apart from John, I would love to thank uh, our sponsors, our staff and our team here to having organized this uh, show and episode uh, together. Thanks everyone for your patient listening and thank you John for your candid remarks and uh, inputs. It's been a pleasure hosting you.
0: Well, KGi, thanks for the invitation. I enjoyed our time together. I look forward to a visit. Uh, and in the meantime, you and all of our listeners stay safe and uh, well, let's all collectively get through this pandemic.
1: All right. Stay safe. Bye-bye.
0: Take care.